Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I was so angry at God. I was like, God, why do you have me in prison? Are you serious? All my French careers are taken off. Moms was in Oz. You know, Saul, Sonia, this one, that one. Everybody's like left the launch pad and they're in orbit. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the same class. Like we all came up together. So I'm like, God, what about me? And I'm like stuck in prison with my hand raised. Like, am I next? So the dream, the artist, the dream to be that artist where my art is supporting me and I'm not supporting my art was a constant gnawing at my spirit. So even though I was in Rikers and I was with the boys and I was teaching and I was authentic when I was there, when I left the prison, I'm like, what the fuck, God? Are you serious? Are you like, I didn't sign up for this. This is not what I want to do while I'm here. I'm doing it. But this and so I felt very invisible. I felt unseen. I felt unaccomplished. I would go into deep bouts of depression because of it. We're back with another episode of At the End of the Tunnel. I am Light Watkins, your host. And if this is your first time listening to At the End of the Tunnel, this is a conversational podcast with people who have been using their platform or their art or their activism to make the world a better place. And today's guest is a self-described artivist. Her name is Lisa Jesse Peterson. And Lisa is a gifted actress. She's a spoken word poet, a playwright, an author, and a youth advocate. Lisa grew up in West Philadelphia, and after attending Georgetown University, she became a fashion model. And then later, she was introduced to the New York poetry scene, where she became one of the stars of the New Yorican Poets Cafe, along with Saul Williams, whose story you may recall from episode 49 of the podcast. Anyway, Lisa's poetry led her to accept a side gig teaching poetry to kids in New York City schools. And her first assignment was at a school called Island Academy, which turned out to be the school at New York's Rikers Island Jail. And that assignment, which was only supposed to last for three weeks, turned into an 18-year career of working with inmates and, and understanding the prison industrial complex. It resulted in a book that she wrote called All Day, A Year of Love and Survival Teaching Incarcerated Kids at Rikers Island. And she also wrote a one-woman show about the prison industrial complex called The Peculiar Patriot. Lisa performed The Peculiar Patriot in over 35 penitentiaries across the country in a self-funded prison tour spanning the course of four years. It was nominated for a Drama Desk Award and it was featured at the 2020 Democratic National Convention. She was also featured in Ava DuVernay's Emmy Award-winning documentary, 13th, 
and she was a consultant on Bill Moyer's documentary, Rikers. In this conversation, we talked about her journey leading up to her work in the prisons and what she learned from that experience. And particularly, we talked about the kids that she worked with and how they ended up in that situation as well. It's a fascinating behind-the-veil analysis of prison culture and what it's like to teach poetry in prisons. Lisa also reveals some of her own career struggles and insecurities and the leaps of faith that she had to take while she was being of service. I think you're going to find both Lisa and this conversation as inspiring as it gets here on At the End of the Tunnel. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to Lisa Jesse Peterson. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. It's such a pleasure to connect with you again. It's been, I don't know, two or three years, maybe a little bit longer since the last time I saw you at one of my shine events. And you're wearing an Ali shirt here in the Zoom before you had a Kaepernick jersey on. So you're always representing, I guess, (laughs) all day, every day. Yeah. So, yeah, we're going to get into your story leading up to your work in the teaching poetry to kids, prison and all of that. Before we dive in to the meat of the story, though, I'd like to start off talking about childhood. And so my kickoff question is thinking back to little Lisa in Philadelphia. I think that's where you were you were mm-hmm. raised. What do you remember as your favorite toy or activity as a kid? Wow. You know what comes to mind? And <laughs> I was talking to my cousin about this the other day, the Rock'em Sock'em toy where they were like these two fighters in the ring, you know, you would control them and they would like knock, you can knock each other down. So I love that Rock'em Sock'em. I'm not familiar with Rock'em Sock'em for some reason. What did you get out of that? Was there a strategy it, to it or no, you just it, kind it of like the... It was just like these two kind of like plastic Lego kind of figures in the okay. ring, in like a boxing ring. One was red and one was blue. You know, their arms moved and I think their, their feet moved so you could kick and punch. And the goal was to like knock down the other opponent. <laughs> it was kind of brutal, but it was, I don't know. I just love that when you asked me, that first toy that came to mind was Rock'em Sock'em. <laughs> Who would you play with? Your sister? <laughs> no, my cousin, my cousin Pebbles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a very feminine type of a game. Like, no, it wasn't. But we were just like all over the place. As soon as we would do the rock'em sock'em, and then we would go outside and play double dutch, you know. And jacks, jacks was really like one of my favorite games to play, and I was really good at because I had long fingers. And double dutch, I love jumping double dutch. Wait a minute, but you're so tall. Were you tall back then when you were trying to I, play double I was. dutch? I was. I was. <laughs> That's so they, a disadvantage have, in double dutch. No, so they would have to move up closer. <laughs> right. So you were like a street kid. You were like hanging yeah. out in the streets a lot. Yeah, I, I loved outdoors. I loved hanging outside. You know, like, mm-hmm. all, I mean, well, I guess not kids today because they're so like phone and computer oriented. But this was, you know, before cell phones and being outside and running around was kind of the pastime. Did you grow up in the city? Yeah. I grew up in West Philly. Okay. We know West Philly from the Fresh Prince, obviously. He kind of made it famous. But what is yeah. that? What was that like for you and your family? Talk about your household growing up in West Philly. 
I had a really amazing family, core family, my mom, my dad, my sister. We were all really close. My cousins lived right around the corner so I could walk to their house, Mm. which was great. You know, my Aunt Marie, who was Pebbles' mom, Pebbles and Kim's mom, they were my two closest cousins. And then I had a god sister who lived up in Overbrook. And it seemed kind of normal. It wasn't anything special, but it was special because I had such a close, tight-knit family. You know, my mother and, and father, they were very close. One of the things that I'm so grateful for is that they were in love. They didn't just love each other. Like they were in love and it was so palpable. You know, they would like play around like teenagers and he would smack on the butt and she would blush, you know? So I grew up in, in, in a household full of love. And at the same time, I also grew up in a household full of politics because my dad was always talking about politics and what was going on in the country and what was going on in the city. And, you know, I had a really acute awareness for the racial divide because my parents, they came through Jim Crow. And so even though, of course, that was not my experience, but that was their experience. And they were very vocal about racial dynamic. And it was my my dad who was actually the first one to teach my sister and I about code switching. And it wasn't even called code switching back then. It was just something that that I watched my father do. You know, it was very interesting because he was such a great orator and storyteller. And and I guess that's where I get my performance and my storytelling from is my dad, because he would be in the kitchen. My mom would be at the stove cooking and my sister and I would be sitting at the table and my dad would be like perched up on the kitchen sink, sipping a little bit of doers and water. That was his favorite drink. And he would just be talking about politics and what was going on and we're talking about any kind of scenario. And then the phone would ring and he would instantly change his voice. And we knew that it was somebody white on the phone, by the way, his voice changed. (laughs) And he was so evident because he would hang up the phone and he would literally say, see, that was whitey on the phone. And that's what you got to do, baby. And so so we were were taught, we were schooled at a very young age that there's a certain way that you present yourselves in front of white people. And then, you know, you go back to your comfort zone around family and your community. So, um, so that was very interesting that I didn't know that I was being taught then, but it's very evident in how my politics are today. Talk about your dad's coffee and donut story, the Red Cross. Oh, wow. Yeah. My dad enlisted in the army and he served during World War II. There's actually a picture of him in the history books because they have wartime photographers that travel and take pictures. And they took a picture of him and his buddy in the foxhole and made the history books. And it says two unnamed Negro soldiers. And it was my dad was one of them. (laughs) And so when he came home from war, there was a Red Cross. The Red Cross was greeting the soldiers with coffee and donuts, you know, and there was, you know, a woman, a white woman who was had a tray of refreshments for the soldiers. And when my dad just coming home from the South Pacific and risking his life and limb for this country, went to go reach for one of the donuts, the white red cross woman, bitch. (laughs) Um, (laughs) She snatched a tray away from my father. And she says, these aren't for niggers. And my father 
vowed, he said from that point on, he said he would never donate any blood to the Red Cross. And he he said even if his own mother needed Mm. blood from the Red Cross, he would never give a drop of blood to the Red Cross. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. What were some of the lessons that he would echo in your household growing up? I know you talked about code switching. Were there any others like you got to work twice as hard as white people or anything like that to remember as you were in your developmental years? Yeah, my dad was very psychic and he always talked about how we came from royalty Mm -hmm. And he would talk about himself as being a king. He'd be like, yeah, you know, baby, you know, I'm a king. I'm I'm, I'm a king, baby. You know, you know, your daddy's a king. And he would always remind my sister and I and my mother, he would, he said that we were the super niggers. He said, we're the super niggers of the planet. And Mm -hmm. he said, because everything that we went through, he said, from the Middle Passage to slavery, Reconstruction and Jim Crow, he said, only... The people who survived, which is us, he goes, we're the super niggas. He goes, we're the strongest people on the planet. Mm. So he instilled in me at a young age just a sense of pride. So not being ashamed of my history or the part of history that included slavery, but to embrace it as a a badge of warrior strength. And he went further than that because he said that, you know, we were kings and queens before we were captured. So he was Mm. very aware or he had a very acute awareness of the legacy of a great black civilization and our strength as African-Americans specifically based on what we had to go through and overcome. And he just felt like th- that we were, we had superpowers and we were, su- mm. he called us super niggas. So I know you went to Georgetown later, which means you must've been a very good student. Were you doing a lot of reading? Like what were you excelling at in school? <laughs> I smoked a lot of weed in high school and I played a lot of hooky and it was really quite a miracle that I was even able to graduate 
And I only said it because I missed so many days of school and it would drive my parents crazy because I, I had this, I guess I was a smart kid because I didn't have to go to class and I would pass my classes. And so they would be so furious that I had all this behavioral stuff. I was fighting. There was, I was hooky, you know, days missed. And then my argument was, yeah, but I got an A in the class, you know? <laughs> so I was able to manage the work and all of my, you know, nefarious activities, which drove my parents crazy, but I did pass. And one of the things that really got me going was I love English and I love social studies. And I was introduced to the autobiography of Malcolm X in high school. And that just blew my mind. How were you and introduced to that book? I think it was my friend's sister, or it might have been my cousin, my older cousin, because I, I had to do a book report. And, you know, I wasn't really into whatever they were teaching me in social studies. And so I think it was one of my, my cousins said, oh, you should read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And I did. And I was already introduced to Louis Farrakhan because my boyfriend at the time when I was in high school, he was a Muslim. He was in the nation of Islam. So he introduced me to Farrakhan as a violin player and he would play his speeches. And so my mind just really blossomed and opened up in terms of like this revolutionary black consciousness. And so my first book report in high school was I did a comparison and contrast with Malcolm X and Farrakhan. And my social studies teacher was like, oh my God, because this is white woman, you know what I mean? And I'm like writing a book report about the white man is the devil. <laughs> but I got an A. What did you see yourself becoming when you grew up at that point? And how did you view success? So I viewed success through the lens of what my, my older sister was doing because my older sister, she went to Wharton and, you know, she was the first one in our family, in our immediate family to go to college because both my mother and my father didn't go to college. My mother never went and my father dropped out, I think, his first year at Penn State because of the racism in upstate Pennsylvania. So he had to drop out to survive or else they were going to lynch him. So my sister, when she got accepted to um, University of Pennsylvania and went to Wharton, it was kind of expected that I was going to be on that same track of going into corporate America. So I had, my goal was to work for corporate America or go into politics, you know, go to law school. So I was on a really traditional graduate corporate or law school lawyer. I was on that track mm -hmm. because I was following in my, in my big sister's footsteps who, who I revered. She was my hero. So mm -hmm. if, if Leslie did it, Lil' Lee's is going to do it. Was she advising you? Was she giving you mentorship? Oh, yeah. oh, or was that, she telling I, you, make sure you do what, what, and what? Yeah, she, you know, well, she, like my father, believed that you had to get into the white man's game in order to change it from the inside. So mm -hmm. it was really impressed upon me. You have to go to white institutions. You have to go and, you know, work for white corporations, you know, because you have to learn the white man's game. You've got to be the spook who sat by the door. You know, if you want to make change, you've got to get inside. You've got to sneak inside. You know, you have to mm -hmm. use your wit to get on the inside, to move things and change things and to see what the white man is up to. It was all about like this espionage, but in, in order to, <laughs> like that was the consciousness. So my sister went to Penn and I went to Georgetown and she wound up working for corporate America. 
And I was on the track to go work for government, you know, with that same mentality of getting in the inside, seeing what the white man is up to and see how we can help our people from the inside. Mm-hmm. That was impressed upon me from my, from my dad's thinking, from his, his consciousness. Did you get an academic scholarship to Georgetown? No, no. Why, got, why Georgetown um, as opposed to Spelman or Howard or oh, Columbia me, or anywhere else? My, it was so, uh, you know, I really wish I would have gone to Howard or gone to HBCU. I really wanted mm-hmm. to. And my mother, she died my senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to, first I wanted to go to Cal, uh, UCLA. I wanted to go to California. I just wanted to get as far away as possible. And my dad was like, no, you're not going to way that far because he had just lost his wife and I just saw my mother. So he said, come closer. And I, I knew I wanted to go somewhere where there were a lot of black people, where there was a black community. Cause I didn't want to just go to school and be somewhere in some West bubble fuck somewhere and not have access to my community. And so I said, Oh, what about DC, Washington, DC? That's a lot of black people, right? Chocolate <laughs> city. So I wanted to go to Howard. I really wanted to go to Howard. And my father I mean, I'm angry at him because he didn't let me, but I understand what his thinking was. He was like, no, you're going to go to a white man's school because you're going to learn the white man's game because you're going to, that's the only way you're going to make a difference and succeed Mm -hmm. is to learn their game. So he said, you can, you can go to school in DC, but you got to pick one of these Ivy League institutions. And so, I mean, I wish I would have gone to Howard, you know? (gasps) So that's how I wound up choosing Georgetown because my dad was like, you got to go to the white man's school. Even at the white man's school, you were the head of the Black Student Union your first year. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And I tried to bring Farrakhan to to be one of the speakers. But I did get Ivan Van Sertema. I was able to get Ivan Van Sertema, who wrote They Came Before Columbus. I brought him down to speak to the Black student body. Give us a little synopsis about his theory that came before Columbus. Ivan Van Sertema was one of our great scholars and historians. And Mm -hmm. the whole false narrative with the whole colonization of history teaches us that Columbus discovered America. And his, Dr. Ivan Van Sertema's scholarship proves that there was trading with Africans and the Native Americans before the Europeans set foot onto this continent. So there was a relationship between Africans and and Native Americans long before the Europeans. And Columbus, I think, even wrote about it in his journal about some of the goods that had been traded well Mm -hmm. well before he arrived. Yeah, and that's that's a great thing to go into a little rabbit hole with for those people listening to this. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I haven't been Uh, sure to my... Yeah. We'll, we'll link that in the show notes. So you graduate Georgetown. Do you have a job lined up? Um, I know you eventually ended up in Paris, but I want to hear the story of what happened there. So, you know, it was so interesting. When I graduated, all the white kids and wealthy kids, they were all like going to backpack to Budapest for a year. <laughs> and, you know, they were doing all this exotic shit. And I was like, daddy, I want to do something like that. And he was like, you got a summer. You've got June, July, and August to do whatever you want. But come September, you're either going to go to grad school, law school. There's a plan for the next level. 
And so you're not going to be, you know, traipsing across the globe with a backpack for a year. Not doing that. In um, other words, I'm not paying for you to do that. I'm not paying for you. And I don't have the money for it because, mm-hmm. you know, I was in you know, up to my beyond my eyeballs and student loan debt because, you know, I couldn't afford Georgetown. My father couldn't afford it. So, you know, mm-hmm. I was in debt. And so I decided to hang out with my, my best friend who she got a job <laughs> working for Planned Parenthood in New York. So she said, oh, just come on, hang up, hang out with me in, in New York. And I said, oh, great. You know, I had never really hung out in New York and it was my best friend. So I decided to hang out in New York for the summer. And while I was in New York, I was like, oh, I'm going to try modeling. Because everybody kept saying, oh, you should model. You know, I, I was always told that, but modeling was never something that I thought I could do or should do or took seriously. In my head, I'm just going to fuck around for the summer. And then in the fall, I'm going to go to law school because I was thinking of becoming a lawyer. You know, Let me working. ask you this really quickly. You were smoking weed and mailing it in in high school. You couldn't obviously do that at Georgetown. You had to really like assert yourself. So yeah. were your grades really good? Did you graduate with a great GPA to go to law school? And did you have options? I did. Or- and you know what? You know what I think saved me? Because I smoked so much weed in high school that when I got to college and I drank so much liquor and I mean, I was I was wilding out in high school. I was drinking old E in the morning and <laughs> smoking weed at like 730 in the morning with a hot dog and, you know, Welch's, Welch's grape soda. It was crazy. So by the time I got to college, it was out of my system. It wasn't a new thing to do. You know, I might have a drink here, smoke a little here, but I wasn't going overboard because eh, I did that. You know, that's, you know, it wasn't interesting to me. And I also knew I had to graduate. Because I was such a daddy's girl and my father's heart was so broken by my mother dying right before, you know, I graduated high school. I knew I had to do it for him. So I was on a mission to make my dad proud. So I Mm -hmm. knew I couldn't fuck up. I couldn't drop out. I couldn't be a disappointment and bring more heartache to my dad because his heart was already broken and he was already suffering because he lost the love of his life. Did she die unexpectedly or was she sick? She was sick for about a year. She died of cancer. And so it was a real shock to our family's body because my mother was a healer. She was the healer of the family. Everybody came to my mother for advice. You know, she was the matriarch. She was the compassionate healer. Everybody, she listened to everybody. She was non-judgmental. Even the priest in our church came to my mother for counseling. <laughs> it's crazy, right? It's, it was usually, uh, up, it's, you would think it's the opposite way around, but you know, my the priest would be sitting on, my, on our couch and my mother would be counseling him while he had tears in his eyes. So my mother was that kind of, she just had that kind of medicine woman energy. Yeah. Did she have any parting words for you, words of wisdom or any like, promise me you'll always do X, Y, and Z or anything like that? She didn't have any parting words that I can remember. And it's interesting because a lot of memories of my mom, it's hard for me to recall because I remember at her funeral, I went into shock and they had to get smelling salt. Like, And I just, I didn't fall out, but I was just like stuck with a petrified tree. So I felt like a lot of my circuit breakers kind of got shut down from the trauma of seeing my mother in a casket, and uh, which, was, which was my first funeral was going to my mom's funeral. But one of the things that she always impressed upon me was compassion. She was, she was so big on kindness and compassion. And that was something that she drilled in me, you know, cause you know, I'm a teenager and I'm smelling my, 
you know, smelling myself and I thought I was cute and, you know, sassy and I had a potty mouth. But she always stressed to be compassionate and kind to people no matter what. And so she stressed the, the humility. So that's where I get my humility, my compassion from is straight from my mother. Cut to New York. You're thinking about getting into modeling. So I'm thinking about getting in modeling. I'm just hanging out with my homegirl and for, you know, a month or two with the plan of going back to Philly to take my, my LSATs or to apply to take my LSATs to start their journey. So I'm just kind of fucking around for the summer. And I go to a modeling agency and they tell me that, oh, if you want to model in New York, you have to go to Paris. Like that's the litmus test. You know, they were like, darling, you know, I mean, I mean you know, New York was very shady back then. They were like, darling, have you been to Paris? I was like, no, I never been to Paris. They were like, darling, once you, if you, you go to Paris and um, if they accept you there, then come back to see us after you've gone to Paris. So my little ego was like, well, fuck it, I'm going to Paris. <laughs> Not even thinking. And I literally, I got a round trip ticket to Paris. I had $300 in my pocket. Not thinking things through. And I'm on the plane and I start bawling because I'm like, I don't even know how to get from the airport to this little address of a hotel that I have on a piece of paper. Like, what the fuck have I gotten myself into? It, it just kind of kind of landed on me while I'm in air on flight. Like, what am I doing? It was so spontaneous because that's what you do. Like when you're a kid, right? You don't like think all the things all the way through. And I wound up going to Paris and I wound up staying there for, I think, three to five months and working as a model. And I was like, and, and it was interesting because working as a model in Paris, it opened my perspective of the possibility of art, the possibility mm-hmm. of creativity being something that you can do as a living. Because I never thought about mm-hmm. modeling as a living, DJs, artists, painters, musicians. That world was not real. It wasn't viable. It was a hobby. You know, it wasn't something that you do. It was something that you played with. But here I am. I'm you know, I'm coming from West Philly, you know, a little West Philly chick with my little big earrings from around the way. And I'm going up and down the Champs-Élysées and I'm being exposed to like all of this art and creative people. And I was like, wow. So it really introduced me to who I am now. It tapped something that was lying dormant in me, the creative person. And I was able to explore it. But it, it was modeling was the, the gateway, like the gateway drug. <laughs> what agency were you with in Paris? I was with um, Metropolitan. Okay. Yeah, Beautiful. Metropolitan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you walked in uh, Jean-Paul Gaultier's show? Yes, I walked in Jean-Paul Gaultier's show. That was my first big show. Yeah. And I didn't even know who Jean-Paul Gaultier was. I'm not, <laughs> you know, what I know about Jean-Paul Gaultier? I'm from, you know, West Philly. And so I was staying with this brother named Claude Granitsky. And the reason why he's significant because he's now the editor-in-chief of Trace Magazine. And I met him at this popular club called the Bandouche. And the Bandouche was like, you know, the hot, hot club in Paris. And how I even, and it's like, you know, you have to be on the guest list. How did I get to the Bandouche? Me coming from New York, not knowing anything about anything in Paris. While I'm on the plane, boo-hoo crying, like, I don't know how to get from the airport to this address this french black woman sees me crying she's like mon chérie mon chérie what is the problem why are you crying mon chérie and so i'm like i don't know how to get to this address you know so this black angel on the plane she helps me navigate getting from the airport to the hotel address <laughs> and she was like come to this 
club tonight. She goes, I'm the bartender. So she mm-hmm. was the bartender at the Bandouche at the hottest club in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> so the universe was conspiring to help me. So that's how I got into the Bandouche. And when I got into the Bandouche, I met Claude Grunitsky, who he was in school and he loved hip hop and we just hit it off. And we weren't lovers at all. We were just totally just like two friends kicking it. And he let me stay with him in his flat and I cooked for him. And, you know, he was the son of an ambassador. From, so that was uh, all sorted out within like 48 hours of arriving in Paris. Oh, my God. It was crazy. And I, I had my, my round trip ticket because I'm like, if shit doesn't work out, I got a way to get home. And then I met Claude and we hit it off. And he was like, you can stay. And I went to an audition and it was for Jean-Paul Gaultier. I don't know who Jean-Paul Gaultier is. I couldn't even pronounce Jean-Paul Gaultier at the time. And when I got back to Claude's apartment, he had a magazine and Jean-Paul Gaultier was on the cover. And I was like, oh, that's the guy who was at the casting. <laughs> he was like, bitch, you just met Jean-Paul Gaultier. That's the designer. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> and I got and I got uh, booked. And so, the, you know, things just kind of took off from there. So then you came back to New York. You were this big couture international model. And what happened? Well, you know, modeling, what with anything that you love, anything you want to do, it takes a lot of sacrifice and hard work and commitment. I didn't love it enough to sacrifice. You know, I mean, I was eating baguettes and espresso. Like I was broke. I was poor. Like, you know, you get a gig and that's one gig. But then there's like months and months in between where you're not working, you know, Mm -hmm. you're just pounding the pavements and you're being judged on how you're looking. You're walking around with this book of pictures and it just wasn't feeding my spirit and my soul. And in my mind, I'm like, if I can't be like Naomi Campbell, then I don't want to fuck with this shit. If I'm not on that level, then this little, you know, running around for little crumbs and enduring the indignities was not sitting well with me. So that that was short lived. And, you know, I'm from West Philly, so I didn't know how to play the black girl who knows how to giggle. (laughs) You know, I couldn't, I I didn't know how to do that. (laughs) I was ready to fight motherfuckers if they put their hand on my knee. And I was like, what the fuck, get the fuck off of me, you know? So. (laughs) What was your spiritual foundation if you had one at the time? I know you began journaling at some point. Were you journaling at that time or did you have some kind of practices that you you would employ to sort of take the edge off or to process things or understand things? Yeah, I was journaling. I was journaling because I was in so much pain with the loss of my mother, but mm. I, I, didn't, I didn't know how much pain I was in. And that's where a lot of the rage was coming from because I didn't know how to process the pain. So it was mm. coming out in rage, you know, wanting to fight. You know, I was always on edge. I was a firecracker. It was when I found acting and it was through Shakespeare because I was in love with language. Mm-hmm. And so when I was living in the East Village and I found this little bookstore and they had a, the works, the complete works of Shakespeare. I don't even know why to this day I picked it up. Why did I pick up the complete works of Shakespeare? Because it was this big, red, thick book. I opened it up and the language just jumped out. I was like, what is this word? Wow. And I was just taken by the, the poetry of it. And I think it was Hamlet and Othello were the first two plays I read on my own. I was not in acting school or anything. I just read it on my own and read like a soap opera. And I was just, I was like, I want to do this. I, I want to put these words in my mouth. And so I've, and there was a National Shakespeare Conservatory summer program. And I applied and I got in. And that was my first time acting 
ever. And it was when I was acting at the Shakespeare Conservatory and I was doing a role, I was playing Cleopatra. It was a, a scene from Antony and Cleopatra. And all that pain that I had that I didn't know what to do with, and I wasn't even conscious of it, it came through the character. I was able to tap into it. And I remember the acting t- teacher, Jimmy Tripp, he had water in his eyes. He was like, you've never acted before? Wh- where did you come from? Wh- where are you getting all this wealth of emotion from? But it was, I was able to tap into that pain from losing my mom. And it was something cathartic that happened. I don't know, I felt like I was, I was reborn. I was able to process what was stuffed down in me, giving me so much heartache, was through character, was through story. And that's when I just shaved off all my hair and I was like, fuck modeling. This is what I'm, I'm supposed to do. How did you get into this conservatory if you never acted before? Because I'm sure you had to do a monologue and maybe sing something. Like, why yeah. did they choose yeah. you? I memorized a monologue from Othello. Because I mm-hmm. love the story of Othello about the Moor. I was attracted to it because it was a black man in Shakespeare, right? And he was a Moor, and I knew the history of the Moors. I was like, oh my God, there's a character about the Moors. And so I memorized a, a, a monologue from Othello. And that's what I performed, which was kind of weird. Like now I think about like I was doing a man's monologue as a woman. So that in and of itself was interesting, but I wasn't trying to be interesting. I just loved what he was saying, his passion, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. his love for this woman. You also ended up, I'm assuming, at some point at the New Yorkian Poets Cafe? Yeah. Yeah. Was that around that time? That was around that that same time. And um, again, it goes back to my journal. I had broken up with this guy and I wrote in my journal about this heartbreak. And I was in acting class. I was at the time I had, I finished in conservatory and I was acting with Susan Batson, who's a coach, an acting coach. And so one of my friends, Sonia San, you might know her from The Wire. She played Kima in The Wire, but this is mm-hmm. before all that. You know, I first we, saw her on Slam. Okay, right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were both in acting class together. That's how we know each other. She also lived right around the corner from me. So we were just having one of our girlfriend moments, right, in the East Village looking up at the stars, dreaming, talking shit. And I shared with her one of my, my journal entries about this dude I broke up with. And she said to me, she goes, girl, that's a poem. I'm like, girl, this ain't no poem. This is just me talking about whoever the guy's name was. You know what I mean? He broke my heart. She goes, she was like, girl, that's a poem. You got to go read it at the New Yorican. I'm like, the New York who? I never heard of the New Yorican. She was like, bitch, you live right around the corner from the New Yorican. Because I lived on 7th Street between C and D. The New Yorican was on 3rd Street between B and C. Mm-hmm. She was like, you live right around the corner. Go read it. So the actor in me, wanting a stage, an opportunity to perform, I was like, okay. But I never called myself a poet. So when I went to the New Yorican to read what she said was a poem, which I thought was just a journal entry, I gave them a phony name because I was like, if I suck, nobody will say Lisa suck. They'll say whatever name I gave them at the door. Mm-hmm. Suck. Mm-hmm. And I read this piece and people loved it and they invited me to come back as one of the spotlights and the rest is history. Were you off book or did you literally read it from the page on stage? I think the first time I read it off the page, but then when I came back, of course, the actor in me was like, you perform. So I memorized it. Were you nervous at all? I was terrified. I was terrified. I gave him a phony name. 
I don't even know what name I gave him, but I'm like, I'm terrified that I'm going to suck. So I'm not even going to give him my name because they're not even mm-hmm. going to know that this is Lisa. This is somebody else. <laughs> but once you got into it, you probably warmed up a little bit, right? Oh, yeah. And it was the crowd that validated me. And when they asked me to come back and to be one of the people who perform and not just the open mic, I was like, oh, I was good enough? And mm-hmm. they were like, yeah. And that's how I started. And that's how I met the whole cohort of poets that are now my comrades. Yeah, Saul Williams was on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he Mm -hmm. talked about his experiences with that. And then you ended up in the movie slam. Yeah, yeah. And we we all traveled to Sundance together, and we performed at Sundance. We were just some wild poets with fire on our tongue and had no idea that that we were part of a movement that laid the groundwork for a lot of mainstream artists and artistry that's out today. You know, we were, we were what hip hop was when hip hop started, like, you know, before it became mainstream and you just had MCs just battling. That's what we were doing. We were battling on the mic, you know, doing poetry. It wasn't for fame. It wasn't for cameras. There wasn't, there was no fame. There was no cameras. There was no money. There was just passion, just raw passion for the world, for the art form. And we were all like samurais, and we were all keeping each other's blade sharp. And it was really quite an electric movement, an electric time. What's the difference in writing a journal entry and writing a poem that you're going to perform on the stage? Because I'm sure that you had to be a little more intentional after you had that sort of accidental success when you started becoming a poet. Well, the difference is craft. I put myself through school. You know, learning, studying the greats, studying the Mir Baraka, the Sonia Sanchez, the, the, the last poets, you know, the Paul Lawrence Dunbars, you know, the June Jordans. Like I went to school and learned self-taught school and mm. learn, learn form. And I'm still not a big, I'm not about form, but the journaling is the initial process of dumping the emotion and dumping the thoughts on the page. And then the poet goes in and does alchemy and picks out this word, this sentence, and does the rearranging and does the alchemy with the journal entry. So the journal entry is where I always start. I always start with, for me, that's my process. I'm a little fuzzy on the timeline here, but I know you eventually created a one-woman show. That was before you started teaching the workshops. At yeah. the academy, at Island yeah. Academy. Absolutely. So I had so I had a, my first one woman show was inspired by Intazaki Shange's For Color Girls, where it was a choreo poem. So my first one woman show was called Kieran's Homegirl Healer Howls. And I took poems that I had written and I created a choreo poem like Intazaki, you know, in, in that using that format. And so that was my first one woman show. So it was because of my reputation as a poet. And now I'm doing theater because I'm still, my my actress needs a stage. My actress needs a platform. My actress wants to act. So the poet now is turning into playwright and creating work for my actress. How are you paying the bills? (laughs) (laughs) It's so magical. I lived. In the only 
Black and Puerto Rican run squat in New York City on 7th Street between C and D for 10 years. And I paid $50 a month rent. It was like I was in a Nebuchadnezzar. I was like in some little magical corner of New York City. You know, uh-huh. there were squats here and there, but this was the only Black and Puerto Rican run squat on 7th Street between C and D. So I was waitressing and I was paying $50 a month rent. So I was able to pay for my school, and my, um, the National Shakespeare Conservatory. I was able to, to live and not be a slave to rent because I only mm. paid $50 a month rent. I never told people that I paid that because I was like, nobody would believe me. Yeah, I, I was having a conversation with Rosario Dawson, who I know is from the East Village, and she mm-hmm. described the same kind of situation there. There was a building her whole family lived in that was also squat. I don't know if it's the same one or not, but that's really interesting. I've never heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody paying $50 in, in the East Village in New York City in the 90s. Yeah. All right. And you get offered a position to lead poetry workshops. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm doing the whole spoken word poetry slamming from New Yorkian to Brooklyn Moon Cafe, Thought Forms Underground. There was this whole network, uh, CBGB's Gallery, that we were all traveling and performing in Acme Underground. I mean, it was wild. It was, it was, whew, man. I mean, it was a time. So my name was ringing some bells. I, I was known in, in certain circles. And so art was taken out of schools in New York. So there was a nonprofit organization that was hiring poets to go into the different schools throughout the different boroughs to do poetry workshops. And the schools were loving it because art was taken out of the schools because they didn't have the money. So they had this nonprofit that was getting funding to put art back into the schools. And so this organization called Waterways, W-A-T-E-R, W Waterways, yeah, 10 Penny Players, they asked me what I want to be a a teaching artist to teach a poetry workshop. And I said, this is great. This is better than waitressing. Like, you know, I'm getting paid to do what I love. And my first assignment as a teaching artist was at a school called Island Academy. And I'm so naive. I'm thinking Island Academy was a prep school up in Harlem, you know, like, because it was Frederick Douglass Academy up in mm-hmm. Harlem, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking it's a prep school. Island Academy was the high school located at Rikers Island. So my first teaching artist gig was at Rikers Island, teaching incarcerated adolescent boys ages 16, 17, 18 years old. And that was my okay. first time going to prison, first time going to jail. And I didn't, even, I didn't even know the difference between prison and jail. This is my first experience. If I'm projecting into your shoes and I get that opportunity and I'm living in Brooklyn and I have to go to Rikers Island, just the logistics of the commute alone would make me think, I don't know if I really want to do this. Was that a concern for you when you, no, when you uh, got well, the instructions on how to get there? No, not even. Was, you know, you had to be I up at 4.30 in the morning or something, right? Well, no, actually, because see, this was before I was teaching full time. So I was a teacher oh, okay. and I was, I was still living in the Lower East Side at this time. This is, a, this is in 1998. So in 1998, you know, this is before Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, was out. So mm-hmm. mass incarceration wasn't even language that was in the national lexicon at the time. 
Mm-hmm. And because I'm a teaching artist, you know, I, w- I could kind of make my own hours. I was going in at 12 or 11. Right. I, I was the fun poetry lady coming in. And so the commute didn't bother me because I'm making money. It's better than waitressing. I'm doing what I love. It's for an hour or two. And then I'm home. I'm mm-hmm. popping in and popping out. And for me, I, I didn't feel like I was doing something for the community. I didn't feel like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go teach these kids, you know, who are incarcerated poetry and lift them up. I'm like, this is a gig. I got another way to make some money. All right. So I got to go to Rikers. All right. And I'm thinking in my head, I'm doing a three week workshop and then I'm going to another school. It's a gig. It wasn't it wasn't a mission or a purpose until what, I got there. Describe your first time arriving at Rikers. What was that like? What, what did it feel like walking into there? Well, I knew when I was because I knew I was going to jail and I knew I was working with boys in jail. So I totally dressed down and I kind of, it was almost like I dressed like I was going for war. Like <laughs> I remember, I remember my outfit. I had on these cargo army pants. I had on army jacket, right. That I had gotten from the Salvation Army. And I had like a purple head wrap because I didn't want to dress provocative in any way. I didn't, because I'm, hey, I'm dealing with adolescent boys and I'm going to jail. So I already had that consciousness of, you know, dress it down, like, you know, and my first couple of days there, I was shocked to see so many black and brown faces. That's all I saw was black boys and Latino and Puerto Rican black and Latino boys in the hallway. And something in my spirit knew that something wasn't right. I said, something ain't right with this shit. And again, I had heard about prison industrial complex, but I wasn't in it. I hadn't learned about it. So I had no idea what I was walking into. And it was a correctional officer. And he, we and him, my friends to this day, he's, he's, a, he's like family to me. He said, you don't know where you are, do you? I'm a tough kid, tough woman. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm like right because I'm really talking about. He goes, no. He said, you're on a modern day plantation. And he pointed to the boys who were in uniform going to class. He goes, that's the new crop. They're the new cotton. And I had never heard this language before, this metaphor of cotton crops, prison, slavery. And he said, I'll tell you what you do when you go home, you put prison industrial complex into the computer, see what you find. And when I see you tomorrow, we're going to have a conversation about it. So this man literally boot kicked me into the rabbit hole of prison industrial complex, which we now know is mass incarceration. And I just started gobbling up all this information and I became like an evangelist because the next Mm -hmm. day I'm like, holy shit. And I'm in my class. I'm talking to the boys about it. I'm like, yo, y'all brothers got to know what this is. You know, like this is new to me. So as I'm learning, I'm teaching it to them and they're on fire because I'm on fire. So my poetry classes were off the chain. So my three weeks turned into three years because all the teachers kept passing me around like a hot potato. I became the poet in residence at Rikers Island for three years. In that movie Slam, there were scenes with your friend, Sonia, was teaching a poetry class to adults. And mm-hmm. I'm just curious, and they seem to be really into it. What was it like teaching poetry to juveniles in Rikers Island? Because some of them hadn't even been sentenced yet. Well, I was in the sentence building. So when okay. I first started, I was in the building with kids who were already sentenced. So that's right. why they had on uniforms. Right. The kids who were not sentenced, they were in another building and they were with their street clothes. 
right. which I, ha- I had experienced with them later, but at this Got it. early stage, I'm with the sentence boys. What was really scary for me was the need to be accepted and have what I was teaching to them received, not mm-hmm. fear or for my life or my safety at all. But, you know, you think about kids, adolescents, I'm like, oh, they're going to be throwing paper. They're going to be ignoring me. It's just going to be like romper romp. And it wasn't. So my experience with, with kids is that when you listen and validate their voice, they want to speak more. So the more I validated their voice, no matter what they put on the page, the more they wanted. And they saw that I was listening and not judging and not correcting. I mean, I did eventually, but I had to start off just let me, let me hear what you got to say. These young men were so creative. I mean, literally poetry was just somersaulting out their mouth and they weren't even aware of it. Like, yo, man, that was off the hook. Yeah, that was popping. What? You, do you know what you just said? Write that down. Off the hook. That's a metaphor, right? <laughs> and that made them conscious of how they were already speaking in, in poetry and how their slang was valuable. In your book, you also mentioned the importance of, as a teacher, showing up truthfully and honestly and being really authentic because they can see right through that. Yeah. One of the things I think also helped in the beginning was I had them call me Sister Lisa because they were like, miss, miss, miss. I was like, no, call me Sister Lisa. And there was something about even that term sister. And, and they even asked me, what, what, you a nun? You a nun? Why you got, why do you <laughs> call you Sister Lisa, right? And when I explained to them, I said, no, I said, I'm your sister. And I explained to them the history of how our families were broken up when we first came to these shores as Africans, as African people. So we had to become each other's brothers and sisters and keepers. So you might not be my child, but you became my child because your mother was sold off, right? I may not be your blood sister, but I became your sister because your actual sibling was sold off. And so there was all this disfragmentation that happened because of slavery. So we had to reconnect and recreate family. So I'm your sister. And so when I told them that, they were like, oh, oh, you, you, you on that sister soldier shit. Yeah. And so that gave me a certain level of respect because they, they saw that I was coming to them with a level of consciousness that they couldn't articulate. But once I articulated for them, they leaned into it and they were like, yeah, that's that shit we want. Yeah, we want that black power shit, miss. And then they were, they were correct themselves. Yeah, sister. You know, so they went from calling me miss to sister like in an instant. And I've always reminded them because I wanted them to start calling each other brother. And I called them brother. That's your brother. That's not nigga. That's your brother. Just to kind of plant these, this new language of how we refer to each other and see each other as family, as connected in a very subtle, subconscious way. And it worked. And Miss Peterson ended up being one of your mentors. Can you just talk a little bit about her circumstance with her son and some of the lessons or some of the advice that she gave you about becoming a teacher at Rikers Island? Oh, that was Miss Barron. Miss Barron. Okay. Okay. Miss Barron. She had a 16 year old son who was in prison. Yeah. She she had the 16 year old son who, who was incarcerated and he's home now. Give thanks. But her son at 16 was incarcerated, was looking at 25 to life. She was a school teacher at Rikers Island. She was friends with Sonia. Mm-hmm. And when so when she had invited Sonia to do a poetry workshop, Sonia's career was taken off because of slam. So when she couldn't get Sonia, she asked me to come. Right? So I came in Sonia's place 
And that's how my relationship with Ms. Barron started working with now the kids who are not sentenced, the kids who are waiting, who are waiting to be sentenced. So they got on street clothes. They're a little bit more, when I say wild, like they're a little bit more anxious because their fate is still dangling. Whereas the sentence boys I was working with, they were a little bit more settled because they knew, okay, I got six months. Okay, I'm going upstate. So they were kind of already kind of dealing with the reality. Whereas the unsentenced boys, they're like still back and forth to court. They're still fighting. They're still trying. They, they don't know what's going to happen. So there's a lot of uncertainty and anxiety with the boys who are not sentenced. That's where Ms. Barron worked. So when I did a poetry workshop with her and I saw how she was teaching those boys and loving them, she was like, you want to talk about Thug Mama, but I talk about Thug Mama in the book. That's who I got Thug Mama from because she would verbally smack them up and then the next minute be giving them granola bars. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, you know, your mama spank you and then she cook you pancakes, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So is that kind of, is that that kind of like mama love? And I Mm -hmm. saw how, how the boys leaned into it because it was familiar. She was mama. And mama don't let you do what you want to do. Mama going to smack you up. She was not physical with them, but with her words, she would bark on them. Like I was like, whoa. And I was familiar with that kind of tone because I grew up in a, you know, with a black mom and black household. So I know the difference between boy, what you doing from boy, get your ass down here. But it's a different tone. So she would just flip back and forth, but it was always with love, always yeah. with love. And she was always teaching them about black, culture and black history and who they were as young black men and the love she had for those boys was so palpable and the love that they had for her was palpable they protected her she like she was standing in a gap for their mothers who were not there and Mm -hmm. so they loved her and they need her and they were fulfilling a void that she was having of not being able to be with her own 16 year old son they became her sons so it's very powerful, that symbiotic relationship. They call it transference in psychology. And they say, you know, you're not supposed to do that. And, you know, psychology is supposed to have separation. But we don't do that as Black people. We don't separate. We connect. Because we've already been separated. Yeah, it almost even sounds like a little bit of a code switching version of that, you know, with like your normal sensibilities when you're out in the world. But then you have to be this other person when you are working in the prisons so that the kids respect you and they do what you advise them or teach them to do instead of challenging you and all of that. Mm-hmm. And they did challenge me, you know, I'll never forget this one boy. And, you know, and I, I was doing my, I was doing my sister Lisa thing and I was, you know, I'm on the roll, right. You know, like they're vibing with me. I'm teaching them about black history and culture and teach them about the prison industrial complex. And, you know, I'm bringing my politics in the classroom with the poetry. And he came up to me and he said, and it was something about, I guess the love that I was giving him and it felt too real and he couldn't receive it or it threatened him. Interesting. Like the light was threatening him because it was so authentic. And he walked up to me in the classroom and he goes, miss. And he was one of the, he was one of the gangsters. I mean, he's one of the, one of the, I mean, like legit, like he was in there for murder. He goes, miss, I should spit in your face. And this is, he's saying this in front of the class. It's a challenge. This is my first time being challenged like this. I'm getting, I'm getting love. I'm getting like maybe regular little high school challenges, like throwing a piece of paper and not picking it up, that shit. But this is the first time he's physically challenging me to potential physical danger. And when he said that, he said, I should spit in your face. 
not the teacher, not the poet, but the bitch from West Philly. I looked him dead in his face. I said, do it. Come on, do that shit. And I guess he felt something so sincere in my spirit. Like I was I, at that point, because I had made up in my mind. I said, this is my last day at work. This is my last day. <laughs> right. And he literally, he turned on his heels and he was like, fuck you. And he walked out and he came back maybe a couple of days later and he apologized. You're being challenged on occasion. Your friend, Sonia, and I'm assuming your other friends are like their careers seem to be blossoming as an actress. You're schlepping up and back and forth to Rikers Island. How, how does that make you feel? Like, are you a nightmare? Are you, like, are you waiting for your career to pop off? You're yes, like, it was a nightmare. I was so angry at God. I was so angry at God. I was like, God, why do you have me in prison? Are you serious? All my French careers are taken off. Moms was in Oz, you know, Saul, Sonia, mm-hmm. this one, that one. Everybody's like, they've left the launch pad and they're in orbit. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the same class. Like, we all came up together. So I'm like, God, what about me? And I'm like, stuck in prison with my hand raised, like, am I next? So the dream, the artist, the dream to be that artist where my art is supporting me and I'm not supporting my art with a constant gnawing in, at my spirit. So even though I was in Rikers and I was with the boys and I was teaching and I was authentic when I was there, when I left the prison, I'm like, what the fuck, God? Are you serious? <laughs> I didn't sign up for this. This is not what I want to do. While I'm here, I'm doing it. But this, And so I felt very invisible. I felt unseen. I felt unaccomplished. I would go into deep bouts of depression because of it, actually. Mm. And so your journal was your outlet? My journal was my only outlet. You know, when, when I was asked to be a, a full-time school teacher as, as a substitute, you know, I'm kind of fast forwarding from being a teaching artist to now teaching full-time. The only way I could download all of these emotions was in my journal because writing in my journal was having a conversation with God because I'm having a conversation with myself. That was my prayer. That was my meditation. And so, yeah, when I was working with the boys, I would just journal. I would journal, not thinking that my journal is going to be a book, not thinking that my journal and my experience with them is going to is actually what is going to catapult my art. I'm thinking Mm. God is punishing me, but God is taking me through an initiation for a deepening of my art and a deepening of my purpose. But I wasn't aware because if God told me I, I was going to be where I am today, but I had to go do 20 years in prison, I'd have been like, no, nah, I'm good. So it was like the universe tricked me into it. But my passion for, for the kids was so real. That's what kept me there because I knew that there was something so fertile and so amazing and so powerful. And again, because I was influenced by Malcolm X, I knew that I was potentially in the presence of great men who did not know that they were great. And so it was my responsibility to plant seeds of awareness and consciousness to unlock that awareness in them for their potential. Because I'll never forget something that Tupac said. Tupac said, I may not change the world, but I want to be the spark in the brain of the one who does. So I knew every time I was in that classroom, I was planting seeds. I wanted to light the spark because I hated white supremacy so much. 
And I knew who we were as a people. I knew our history. I knew our greatness. I knew how powerful we were. And I'm looking at these young men who don't know how powerful they are, who don't know how great we are. So I said, it's my job to unlock the sleeping giant within them to turn the shit around. So within that context, what was a successful day for you like when you were working, teaching, knowing that that was your mission? Like when you came home and you were journaling and it was a great day, what, what happened? What would happen on that day versus any other day? Would you have a breakthrough to some kid or something? Yeah. Well, good day was always when kids were laughing, when they were laughing and talking shit, because that meant that they would enjoy. They were experiencing joy. But a good day was also when they were asking me to bring them books that were Mm. about their consciousness. You know, I remember one kid, I was talking to him, how we, you know, the black man is God, right? That we're original people, that that black men and women are made in the image of God. And if the first human bone on the planet was in Africa, then, you know, the image of God, you know, is African man and woman, right? So I'm kicking this shit. And so this one kid is like, oh, Man, go ahead, sister me. You talking that shit. Nobody want to hear that shit. That, you know what I mean? So he was dismissing me, totally dismissing me. And I said, okay, you know, you don't have to listen or agree. So I kept talking to the rest of the guys who were like sitting on the edge of their seat. They were eating it up. Next day I get into the classroom. Science teacher comes in the class. The same kid who was telling me, oh, don't nobody want to hear that. He said to the science teacher, he says, Mr. Whoever his name is, let's say Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones, where are you from? He was like, oh, I'm from Staten Island. No, no, no. Where are you from? Where are you people from? So the kid is interrogating him. And the kid says, no, no, no. We the original people. We made an image of God. So you come from us. So everything that I was saying to the kids the other day that he was dismissing, he was actually listening and absorbing it. Mm. And then he looked at me and he winked. <laughs> and we, just, we shared a laugh. <laughs> I was like, this rascal. (laughs) Just to give people more context, what were these kids in jail for? Were they murderers? Were they rapists? Or what were some of the offenses that you heard that they were in jail for? Everything from the worst to the most banal. Jumping a turnstile and having a warrant out for a, a prior ticket. Loitering. Having illegal firecrackers. Graffiti grand larceny, sexual assault, murder, armed robbery, being caught with a gun, selling drugs. I mean, it ran the gamut. Was there any correlation between what they were in for versus how engaged they were with you? Like, could you kind of tell without knowing someone's backstory, what they probably were doing there? I'm assuming a lot of them being black and brown just probably didn't have great representation or probably didn't have any representation and taking a plea deal or something like that. All of them. All of them took plea deals and all of them had court appointed attorneys, legal aid lawyers. Rarely did they have a paid lawyer. If they had a paid lawyer, they were not sitting at Rikers Island because they were at Rikers Island. They did not have a paid lawyer. But what was interesting was that the leaders of the gangs, like the gang leaders, there was a discipline and there was an attentiveness because they they were leaders already in their gangs. So when they would come to class, they really loved learning about black history. They really loved learning about the black Panthers. They really Mm -hmm. loved learning about Marcus Garvey. And there was an attentiveness that they had an acute intelligence because they were generals literally. So the gang leaders 
I got the most respect from. Eventually, after years, you had a panic attack that led you to call some of your friends. I think Son is her name. Oh, yeah. You called Leslie first, then you called Son. Yeah, you I call, son. first I called my sister and then I called and then I called Son. Yeah. So what was that discussion and what happened as a result of that? Well, what was so painful was that the artist in me, even though I'm having this profound connection with these boys and I'm having impact and they're having impact on me and I'm submerged in the world of Rikers. And at the same time, I think we're talking at the same time because I've been in it for so long. My, my boyfriend at the time was incarcerated. So I'm visiting him and I had that experience of being on the bus and being a visitor Mm-hmm. going through checks and sitting on the visiting room floor with the man I loved under surveillance and being watched, that level of humiliation. And the artist in me, I'm still an artist. And I'm looking at all of my friends' careers, like bloom and blossom. And I just look like I'm just being sunk deeper and deeper into the mud of prison. and. I'm struggling trying to find a way to be seen, trying to find a way for my art to be recognized and heard. Passion was fighting my purpose. And my purpose was in prison, but my passion was my art. And they were fighting each other. And it was creating almost a schizophrenia. Because when I was with my purpose, I'm there and I'm authentic and I'm, I'm with them and I'm fighting for them and I'm with them. But then my artist is like, but this is your passion. Your passion is your art, your writing, your performance. You're an actress. And so it created a panic attack because I'm like, I I don't know what to do, God. I don't know what more I can do. And I think that was the birth of the Peculiar Patriot because I, I called another friend of mine and I'm just, I'm sobbing. I'm sobbing in pain. And I was like, my whole life is in prison. My man is in prison. I'm teaching these boys in prison. I met a new guy and he just come home from prison. And I'm like, I can't take this. This is too much. And she literally, she said, you have a story to tell. She hung up the phone on me. And that was when I started writing Peculiar Patriot. And that was the journey of how Peculiar Patriot came to be. And what's so interesting was that, again, that pain of not being seen And then I'm in close proximity, intimate proximity with these boys who are invisible and not being seen by society. So I'm feeling invisible in my world, in my career. They're feeling invisible in society, but they saw me and I saw them. So we were like two invisibles that were seeing each other and validating each other. I was validating that I see you and I value you. And they were doing the same for me. And I didn't realize it at the time, but we were invisibles validating each other. So they were giving as much to me as I was given to them. Talk about the genesis of The Peculiar Patriot. How long did it take you to write it? And did you know you wanted to perform it at penitentiaries or what what was your vision for it? No, again, the artist in me, like once I wrote The Peculiar Patriot, it was interesting. I had a relationship with the Eastern Correctional Facility, which is a maximum security penitentiary for men, adult men. 
most of them are doing football numbers, 15, 20 to life. I had been asked to come up as a poet to work with, um, there was a writer's group called the Harvest Moon Writers Group at Eastern Correctional. There was a woman, a poet, this fierce revolutionary white woman named Janine Pame Vega. And she would invite me to come to be the poet in this writer's collective. So when I wrote Peculiar Patriot, I would bring up pages to share with them in this group every time she would bring me up. And I would say, listen, I'm writing this play. I want your feedback. If it's corny, let me know. I don't want to do, I don't want to write anything exploitative or that's offensive. So they were the first ones who validated my play was the writers at Eastern Correctional Facility. And when they gave me their validation, they said, yo, sis, this is some powerful shit. Take the shit back on the outside so that the world knows that we're here. So when they gave me that, I was like, oh, I got something great. So now the artist in me, I'm trying to get into theaters. I'm submitted to theaters. And the theaters, again, this is before, this is like maybe like 2003, 2004. Mass incarceration is still not a national conversation. Nobody still is talking about social justice. So the theaters were not responding. I was falling on deaf ears. And I was like, what the fuck? I finally got something now that can catapult me into my artist dream. And they were not, they were not trying to hear it. They were not ready to have that conversation about mass incarceration because my play packs a punch. Like I don't pull no, no punches. And so that's what made me take the play to prison. Well, I first performed it at Rikers because I had relationships there. So I was able to perform it because I knew, you know, I knew the wardens and I knew the deputy, the depths of program. So I was able to perform it. And I took it to Eastern, performed it there. And one prison led to another prison. So I was like, fuck theater. I was like, if these white motherfuckers, and there was some black ones too, if they're scared of my shit, I'm going to lean into the love. And the love was in prison. So the prisons were just opening. We're like, yeah, come bring it here. Come bring it here. And, you know, I was charging like a little bit of money, like just my bus fare, you know, and, and pay a light bill or something. And they were opening up their auditorium or their, their lunch hall, their lunch, you know, their mess hall, wherever, or classroom, wherever they had room for me to perform. And I was, and that's where I would bring it. And the reason why I kept performing in prison, because it gets back to the invisibility. So again, the theater world turned their back on me and rendered me invisible. The men and women who were in prison validated me. They saw me and my play by virtue of what it's about validated that I see you. Somebody on the outside sees you in here. And this play is for you. It's not just about mm. you. It's for you specifically. And so again, two invisible people seeing each other. So I wound up touring the play in 35 prisons and penitentiaries across the country because that's where the love was. The love for my work was in prison. It wasn't in theaters. Now it is because Mass incarceration is a conversation and I'm getting, you know, I got grants and, you know, I got nominated for a drama death and whoop de whoop right now that people are talking about it. But when I was first bringing this piece out, theaters did not want to fuck with Peculiar Patriot. Well, what about the prison administration? Were they in love with the idea of you sort of challenging that prison industrial complex system and ideology? They or were they asked, just like regular people like who were just trying to do their jobs? No, they never asked for the script. 
They never asked for the script. So I was very savvy. I never lied, but I had a way of wording my proposal about what the play is about. And if they asked for the script, of course, I would give them the script. I wouldn't, you know, not give them the script. And even though it ruffled a lot of feathers, because it created conversation afterwards and because the guys were talking and they were politicking, it was it was a positive thing. It didn't create a riot. Like that's their main fear. Their, their main concern is safety, right? Security and safety. And it created dialogue. And they saw how they respond, how the men responded and the women responded to the work, to the play. So even though it might have ruffled their personal feathers, it didn't create a security issue in the prison. The one time I was told I couldn't come was at Sing Sing. I came to Sing Sing. I performed. The guys wanted to bring me back. They wanted me to perform for the general population. The warden asked for the script. I said, oh, shit. <laughs> he asked for this. Because they normally, they, normally don't, they don't ask for the script. I just sent a synopsis. And, you know, I'm, I'm able to kind of like dance around the politics of what it is in the synopsis. And they let me come. Right. And once I'm in the door, that's it. I'm in. It's like I'm off and running. And when he asked for the script. They denied me coming back to Sing Sing. And I asked them, I said, well, you know, as an artist, you know, I'm always looking to um, for feedback, how I can better create work that is more accessible. You know, would you mind sending me your notes? So he sent me back the script with the notes he had on it and all the parts where it had, and I still have it, all the sections where it was really political. He had it circled in red and he says, we cannot allow this information in. So it was about the information. I saw the play and there was a pretty substantial audio video component. Did you set all that up in the prisons or was it more like just analog? No, in the prisons, it was just me, a chair and a quilt. That was it. The only time I did the full show with the video was recently in 2020 when I performed it at Angola State Penitentiary in Louisiana. But when I was doing the prison tour all those years, it was just me and a quilt. <laughs> Is that the one they shut down at Angola? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me laugh. And you came out at the end with the fist in the air? I came out the end with the fist in the air. It was so deep. It was so deep because in all my years, and up doing 35 prisons across the I never, ever, ever had my show shut down, ever. Ever. So when they shut down my show in Angola, but that being in Angola was deep because Angola sits on a plantation. I mean, an mm-hmm. actual plantation. That's not a metaphor. It is literal. It used to be the Angola plantation in Louisiana. So I'm on sacred, holy ground where my ancestors were actual slaves toiling the land. And I'm looking at the descendants of my ancestors, these black and brown men sitting in the audience, 700 pack. And I'm looking at the descendants of the slave master standing in the back, just watching this runaway slave, me on stage, talking about them to their face, to the captives. And so it was unleashing something ancient and historical, there was like a, it was a spiritual battle. It was a spiritual battle, looking back in hindsight. So when they shut the play down halfway through, and I came back out, and I threw my fist in the air, and all 700 men jumped up, and they threw their fist in the air, and they were like, Lisa, Lisa. It was creating almost a riot of support, you know, of rebellion, because I had woke the sleeping giants. And, and those, those... Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> Correctional officers <laughs> learning to watch my words. And they were faced with Harriet Tubman returned, the daughter of Harriet Tubman. I had gotten in and I was here to free their minds, to wake the sleeping giants, and which is their greatest fear. Because as long as they're asleep, as long as they're docile, not that these men are asleep, not that they're docile at all, but as long as they have that level of control. And I came and I agitated that. I shook it up. I was like, fuck that. And I came and I just, you know, turned over the table. I was like, fuck this shit. Fuck this cracker shit. Let me tell you what it is. Let me tell you, let me, let me tell you what the system is. And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The men were loving it. And those overseers, they were like, get this nigga off the stage now. Cause she is disrupting our slaves that we have control over. You have been very vocal about saying that you don't believe in prison reform. You believe in prison abolition. Yes. Can you say something a little bit about that? Because you can't reform slavery. You don't Mm -hmm. reform slavery. You abolish it. And you find new ways of dealing with the communities that are suffering from poverty and trauma that create the conditions where people commit crimes. So you don't reform a system that is designed to oppress. You don't reform oppression. You abolish oppression. And you have to be creative enough to think of other ways that is holistic of of how a, uh, a community can become whole and heal. Because we're dealing with a legacy of trauma people and a legacy of terrorists. So you don't reform terrorism. You have to get rid of terrorism, period. And what have you learned about yourself after these 20 something years of your exposure to the prison scene? I learned that this is my purpose. This was my purpose, that this was all a divine plan from the creator, that I was I was chosen to do this work. I was chosen to make the sacrifice with what I thought was my path of my art. The creator had a different path for me. Um, It still is leading me to the same place. It's just a little taking the scenic route to do this work. So what I've learned about myself is learning to surrender to the universe. I learned that I'm very passionate about justice and freedom. And I'm very passionate about black and brown young people. And I know that I'm being used as like, I'm a bell. I'm here to ring the alarm. And like Tupac said, I'm a farmer. I just want to plant a seed of rebellion in someone who will take it to the next level. And if you could give yourself some words of wisdom on day one of going to Rikers Island, what would you say to yourself? I would tell myself, this is part of the dream. Relax. This is part of the dream. Beautiful. So I had to go. I had to travel through nightmare to get to the dream. (laughs) How are you defining success these days? Success is being able to create my art, having my art sustain me financially. That's success. I'm sustaining myself with my art. I don't have a J-O-B nine to five that I have to go to. To me, that's success. Like I'm free. I'm off of that plantation. You know, I'm not clock, I'm not punching the clock anymore. That's for me a success. You know, I'm able to be a full artist a hundred percent of the time. And this has just happened since 2016. 
I've only been free and free for artists since 2016. And for me, that's success. And so my art is blooming and reaching new heights and new levels. That's success for me. Mm. Beautiful. Well, I want to wrap this up by looping back around to little Lisa and how the Rock'em Sock'em was a preview of, of coming something? attractions. That's so subconscious. Like when you asked that, uh, I didn't make the connection until I said, yeah. I was like, Rock'em Sock'em, that's what I'm doing now. I'm like still Rock'em Sock'em. I'm still with that little yeah. toy. You've even coined a, a, a word, artivism. You're an artivist. Mm-hmm. Using your art in a, as a way of rebelling against the status quo and helping to abolish the systems that are clearly no longer working. And you were actually featured in the documentary 13th, mm-hmm. which your work was, which was pretty awesome. So, yeah, I just want to acknowledge you for agreeing, at, even on a spiritual level, in your spiritual contract to go through everything that you've gone through in order to have the impact that you've been able to have on the lives of those kids. Because that's the, I think that's the real impact, you know? I mean, the one woman shows and all that is great, but just showing up day after day and your book all day you wrote about, it's very detailed about your specific interactions with your students and how you could see that many transformations occur in their eyes and the light turn on when you talk about the knowledge of their ancestry and all of that. And I think that's something we talked before the conversation started about Marlon Peterson, who's on the podcast, mm-hmm. who kind of found his calling in jail as a result of a teacher on the outside interacting with him and having him engage, correspond with her students. And so, you wow. know, te- teachers are really. I think the gateway to a calling. And I think God did a great job in, in selecting you against your will <laughs> to come into Rikers to sort of the lower rungs of our society and the mm-hmm. people who are invisible, who've been discarded and bring the light, bring the bell into those environments so that you could help to shepherd these kids to their calling. And also keeping you hungry enough, like every in your book, every other page was, I got to pay my bills. My rent is due in three weeks. <laughs> I got to go back to work again. So it's like, you know, you had to struggle in order to keep you because there's no way a rational person would stay in that environment on their own, you know, accord. You kind of almost have to be forced to do something like that. But of course, in hindsight, you look back and you see the bigger purpose and it all kind of makes sense. So, yeah, I just want to thank you for for saying yes to that. Can I just jump in real quick and say something? Yeah. Just add to yeah. that. One of the things that kept me there, of course, you know, I needed the money to survive. But once I got in the classroom or once I was with the, the youth, there was the, with the boys and the girls, because I work with the girls, too, at Rosam Singer. They triggered and activated the nurturer in me. Talking, going back to my mom. Mm-hmm. The nurturer, the healer in me. So the nurturer and the healer in me was so authentically engaged fully with them, wanting to help. So they kept me coming back. They kept me coming back. Interestingly enough, it wasn't even the paycheck. It started off as the paycheck. But once I got with them and I was like, whoa, I got to go back to talk to Shaniqua. Oh, I got to go back to talk to Jaquan. Like they kept me coming back time and time again. And I think I would have, if I didn't have that authentic connection with them, I would have left a long time ago and found another way to get a buck, 
You know, I would have found another way to earn a dollar. But it was the healer in me, the medicine woman in me, and the compassion in me that wanted to help my people and plant seeds of wellness that kept me coming back with these young people. It kept me there as long as I did. They kept me there. (laughs) Beautiful. I have two more questions for you. The first one is, is there anything anyone listening to this can help you with in your mission? Yes. So now my mission is amplifying my art because the amplification of my art is the amplification of their voices, my book, my plays. So I'm still an artist and I need my, my work produced. I need my work amplified because in amplifying my voice, you're not amplifying me, you're amplifying the stories and the stories represent these young people. Beautiful. And then last question is, you started each class with a morning prayer in jail. Do you remember the prayer by heart? And if so, can you? Yeah. The, well, the morning prayer that I started to get me out of bed, to even get me out the door, was Mother, Father, God, infinite, great spirit, in terror. Show me what to teach. Show me how to reach these boys today. Beautiful. Thank you. thank you thank you for listening to my interview with Lisa Jesse Peterson Lisa's play The Peculiar Patriot is now available on Audible and her book All Day is available everywhere books are sold you can follow her on social media at Lisa Jesse Peterson which is spelled L-I-Z-A J-E-S-S-I-E P-E-T-E-R-S-O in Lisa Jesse Peterson. And to get the show notes and a transcript of my conversation with Lisa, you can go to lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. While you're there, you'll also see that I have a new book out called Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration. It's a book of my own personal stories as well as classical stories that are meant to provide you with little doses of inspiration, little one or two pages of inspiration. So you don't have to read the whole thing from cover to cover. You just literally crack it open and see what catches your eye and read that page. And if you love this podcast and if you follow me on social media and you subscribe to my daily dose of inspiration emails, you will absolutely love knowing where to look and you can find it everywhere books are sold. I've had people reach out to me and say they bought five or 10 copies because it's the perfect gift to give to friends. After all, who couldn't use a little boost of inspiration from time to time? And if you already have your copy of Knowing Where to Look, please make sure to leave your rating or review on Amazon. Let the world know what you think so we can help to spread the word about this trove of inspiration that is available to us all. Also, don't forget to leave a rating for this podcast. You can do so on the Apple Podcast app. Just click the name of the show, which is at the end of the tunnel, and then you're going to scroll down past all of the other episodes and you'll see a section that says five stars review. Tap the fifth star and you left the rating. And if you want to go further and leave a couple of lines saying what you really like about the podcast, you left the review. In the meantime, I'll see you back here next week with another story from the end of the tunnel. Until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you that they believe in you, I believe in you. (laughs) Have a great day.
you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.